0: You're listening to Deconstructive Criticism. I am Aaron Flam. Essayist Brendan O'Neill visits Sweden to talk about his book, A Heretic's Manifesto. But first, thank you for supporting Deconstructive Criticism, whether it is on Patreon.com slash Aaron Flam via PayPal, with Bitcoin, or on Swish, 0046-768-943737, 46 0046-768- 768 943737. You make my work possible. You can also support me by buying my book. This is a Swedish Tiger on Amazon. Brendan O'Neill is a British author and essayist. He was the editor of Spiked from 2007 to September 2021 and is currently its chief political writer. He has been a columnist for The Australian, The Big Issue and The Spectator. Brendan has visited the podcast twice before. He is a lovely person and a brilliant writer. His latest book, A Heretic's Manifesto, is a beautifully argued defense of the Enlightenment, reason, and the right to disagree on the orthodoxies of our age. It is, as one says in English, a must-read. Not that I think that you're not aware of the insanity of our sight, guys. Of course you are. But I believe that armed with Brendan's arguments, you stand a better chance of battling it. Whether it is the sexual mutilation of children, climate jealousy, race baiters, or islamo-censorship, Brandon's writings incisively cuts to the core of what's wrong with our culture. Using historical examples he shows that we are not so different than we were before the Reformation. As luck would have it, his visit to Sweden and on deconstructive criticism coincides with a fierce debate on Quran burnings that has led Sweden's government to repeal our freedom of speech and bend the knee to some of the most authoritarian regimes on the planet. Enjoy!
1: Just reading all the names on your wall. Yes. Title Bam. He's good, Benjamin Title Bam. Interesting guy.
0: Yes, I liked him. I interviewed him. Uh, But that wasn't what we were supposed to be talking about. Uh, I'm supposed to welcome you back to Deconstructive Criticism, Brendan O'Neill.
1: Pleasure to be here, as always. Yeah,
0: it's been a few years. Mm -hmm. But you've uh, been a guest twice before. Yes. Yes. And I've loved it both times. I'm very happy to be back. And uh, I, I remember, I seem to remember last time I nagged you to write a book. Yes. Yes. And, and I now... suddenly
1: got around to it. <laughs> yes,
0: you did. But in my research on you now, because I haven't checked up on you in a while, uh, I saw that you've already written a book under a pseudonym. That's right. Oh my God. That was
1: a long time ago. That was Can I Recycle My Granny by Ethan <laughs> Greenheart. And it was, when was that? 10, 15 years? A long time. That was a piss take out of the green movement. So it was written as a as if I were an eco activist giving advice to the public on how to save carbon. Yes, and it it's was, it's
0: not still in it, circulation, is it? No, it was it hard to okay, find.
1: Yeah, it did okay when it came out. It was it got some reviews and people seemed to enjoy it, but it's it's not well known. It no. Kind of has disappeared. And uh, if if you can find a copy,
0: let me know. Uh, I'll keep trying, uh, but uh, I'm not sure I can. But uh, I hope to get to England at some point in time, and then I can visit some of your old bookshops yeah. if you still have oh, them. Yeah. Uh, so now you've written a beautifully argued book uh, or collection of essays uh, called A Heretic's Manifesto. Uh, so what is the meaning of the word heretic? So a
1: heretic is someone who goes against the grain, <laughs> who breaks... The rules of contemporary thought, I guess that what, that's what it means. I mean, heresy, literally, the word itself comes from the Greek, meaning choice of thought. Um, so it's basically someone who chooses to believe a particular thing, uh, usually something that runs counter to the orthodoxies of our time. So we all know the heretics from the past, the people who spoke out against the Vatican or who denied that Christ was the Messiah or who uh, questioned parts of the Bible. I mean, these are the people who, in Western Europe anyway, we are most familiar with as heretics who were burnt at the stake and strangled to death in public and reduced to a pile of ashes. That's what a heretic in the past was. Today, I think heretics are the people who speak out against the new orthodoxies. Gender ideology, for example, climate change hysteria. We've now gone from global warming to global boiling. That's what the UN is now saying, just complete uh, hysteria on that front. It's the people who speak out about those kinds of ideologies who are treated as heretics now and who are exiled from polite society, deplatformed from universities and uh, television shows and other uh, public platforms. So Uh, Heresy hunting is alive and well, and my book is just trying to bring together all the various heretical ideas of our time.
0: So do you self-identify as a heretic? Yes,
1: I do. Um, I know that's a bit pompous, but I do consider myself something of a heretic. I prefer the word heretic to the word contrarian. I often get called a contrarian, and I hate it, because contrarian, it sounds like you just say things to irritate people. know you 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 only write things or say things just not because you believe them but because you just want to wind people up and get on their nerves that's really what contrarian means in the way in the way that it's used so i've never liked that term because i do believe the things i say i do believe that if you have a penis you're a man i actually believe that so um so for me heresy heretic is a better word because it means that you're standing up for something you believe in even though you know there might be consequences when you do that.
0: I am glad you brought up uh, penises Mm -hmm. uh, because uh, I came across this headline in the magazine Law and Crime by Alberto Luperon on July 23rd 2023. Man shot and killed his pregnant boyfriend and then himself in murder-suicide. Unbelievable.
1: I mean... (laughs) <laughs> what can you, I mean, imagine going back 10 years and showing this to someone, even that recently people would have said, what, what's this doesn't make any sense.
0: Well, uh, the headline was later changed to pregnant transgender boyfriend right. because of transphobic bullying, which I may or may not have participated in. <laughs> uh, so what's wrong with the headline? It's a lie
1: that they're, they're now lying to us. And in fact, one of the points I make in the book, the first chapter of the book is called Her Penis. Yes. um, Because to me, that's one of the most fascinating phrases of our time. And you see it everywhere. You see it in The Times, the newspaper of record in Britain. You see it on the BBC. Um, You see it in courts of law. If If a male rapist identifies as a woman, he is referred to in court as she. And there have been actual court cases where they have said she undid her trousers and took out her penis i mean they're saying it in a court of law a place where everyone swears to tell the truth and yet they're lying um so that headline there man shot and killed his pregnant boyfriend it's a lie the truth is he shot and killed his pregnant girlfriend and the reason that matters everyone some people say well it's just about being polite you're just using people's preferred pronouns you know Stuart Lee, the British comedian, once referred to political correctness as just all it is is institutionalized politeness. since when did being polite mean saying something that you know is not true when since when did politeness mean lying to yourself and to other people because that's what this culture encourages us to do and and one of the examples I give in in that chapter, her penis is um, a report in the New York Times and on the BBC a couple of years ago they had this report about an eighty something woman in New York City who murdered and decapitated another woman who was in her 60s. And I read this and I thought, hold on, women in their 80s don't do this. Women in their 80s tend to be quite small, quite frail, certainly not murderously inclined. I can't think of any instance in my lifetime.
0: Well, there could be a biological exception somewhere in history.
1: Well, there could well be, but I can't think of any time in my lifetime when a, a frail old woman in her 80s has murdered and decapitated another woman. It's the kind of thing that doesn't happen. Of course, you get to the end of the article, the last line in the BBC's case And it says, this is a transgender woman. You get halfway through the New York Times article and says, the murderer previously identified as a man but now identifies as a woman. So it's a man. So the whole article was a lie. They were lying to the public. And uh, the point I make in my book is that when you get to a a situation where the cultural elites think they can lie to us and get away with it, think they can define reality however they please and make us and gaslight us, essentially, into into denying the light of our own reason and what we can see and hear with our own eyes and ears. When they think they can do that, that's the uh, uh, um, that's the highest form of tyranny, when the establishment thinks that it can define reality to, to make sure that it accords with its own ideology, and we absolutely shouldn't. So that's why that headline's offensive, because they are sacrificing the truth at the altar of ideology, and we shouldn't let them do that. So you say you're offended by that? I am offended, yeah. I don't want it to be banned. Um, I'm not going to demand, you know, the enactment of cancel culture against whatever idiot wrote that headline. I don't want them banished from public life. But I'm offended at the at the fact that they think they can lie to us. I'm offended by how they're treating us. They're treating us like... Um, the flotsam and jetsam of everyday life who they can just mold however they choose and 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 it, it's it's not just about changing how we think it's sorry it's not just about changing how we speak it's about changing how we think you know the manipulation of language is always fundamentally about manipulating thought so the more you have this these drip, drip of headlines about an 80 year old woman who killed another woman. Not true about um, this man killing his pregnant boyfriend. Not true. Boys can't get pregnant. Men can't get pregnant Uh, or headlines that I document in my book. Many of them where they say um, a woman has been arrested for flashing her penis at passersby. Not true. They're just lying again and again and again. And I'm offended by that. I'm offended by the fact that they think we are so stupid and so gullible and so malleable. And that essentially we are their property, and it is down to them to fill our heads with the correct thought. That's
0: what offends me. Well, this is a bit different because Law and Crime is an American magazine, so it's privately funded, and there is no tax revenue going to its (laughs) financing, unlike, I guess, the BBC. Mm -hmm. The BBC has some public funding, does it not? Oh, yes. You have to, by law, give money to the BBC. Oh, it's that way now. It used to be. If you have a television. Because it used to be voluntary, right?
1: Um, in, I, I don't know the answer to that question. It may have been voluntary in the past. I mean, it's voluntary in the sense that you don't have to own a television. But if you do own a television, you have to give money to the BBC. You have to give them, I think it's £15 a month now, which, £150 a year or something like that. And if you don't, they will come around, and sometimes you get arrested and taken to court, and the people, you norm- the, the, the people who normally get taken to court for not giving their money to the BBC tend to be poor single mothers, poor women who live on their own, who can't afford to, to pay the BBC. So, yeah, we are forced to give money to the BBC. So it's, it's, so you have this publicly funded broadcaster, which is publicly funded under threat of criminalisation, um, and it still thinks it can just treat us like crap by saying things to us that it, that it must know at some level are not true and does not accord with its values, which is to tell us what's happening in the world.
0: Yeah, so we've covered the first chapter of your (laughs) book then, I suppose. Um, So why can't you respect people's preferred pronouns? I mean, I myself uh, term myself evil slash genius now. So I respect that. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah, I respect your pronouns,
1: 100%. Evil genius. Um, Because no man is an island, and whatever we may think about ourselves, we live in a social world where there are established truths, um, established way, uh, an established way of speaking, an established way of greeting each other. We all know that there are men and women, boys and girls, and that there are some differences between them. We're brought up to understand that. We know that our mothers are different to our fathers. We know that these people played particular roles in our lives. If you grow up a boy, as we did, um, your mother will, in most cases, be the nurturing parent, and your father will roughhouse you and push you around and, strengthen you up and so on we all know this so um if you come into that world in which all these things are already established and are very useful and important ways of knowing what's going on if you come into that world and say well actually even though i've got a penis and a beard um and i'm a bloke my name's dave even despite all of that you have to refer to me as she i'm sorry but you don't get to do that because what you are defining is your freedom to define your own pronouns encroaches on other people's freedom to think and speak as they understand the world around them. So I don't respect people's preferred pronouns because I see it as an act of delusion, delusional, it's a delusional belief and one that I or anyone else should not be forced to go along with.
0: It is quite interesting because I remember my aunt, she's not alive anymore, but she used to be a psychologist. Um, and she, I remember her telling me when she was alive about working in mental institution, institutions in the 70s where uh, one of the most common delusions that they had to treat was people who thought they were Napoleon. Mm. And she said, uh, usually we had five or six people who thought they were Napoleon in the same ward but usually wow. they got along great.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm glad to hear it. Yes. Uh, but
0: uh we didn't um give them hormones no. to make them Napoleon. We didn't, nor did we. We did surgically, uh, you no. know, uh, rearrange them to no. become Napoleon.
1: We didn't acknowledge their preferred identity. No. Their preferred identity was to be Napoleon, and we didn't acknowledge it. We said to them, "You know, you're a lunatic, and we're going to put you inside this institution." Now, I don't think transgender people should be put inside institutions. Just to make that clear, I think they should move freely in society and do whatever they want to do. Um, and they should call themselves she and he and they and Z and Z. They couldn't. They should do any of that, and uh, and I think they should have the right to change their names and they should dress however they please. Of course, I believe in freedom on all those levels. But where things get complicated is when the pressure is then put on everyone else to recognize and acknowledge and validate their identity. Not only to the level of where there is a huge pressure on us now to say he, to say she and her about someone who's obviously a man. So there's pressure on us to lie to ourselves, to um, deny our own understanding of science and uh, objectivity. But also there's pressure on women to have these people in their spaces. So if you're a woman and you're in a changing room and you're taking your clothes off, and this transgender woman comes in and takes his clothes off and he's got a swinging dick.
0: You're referring to Leah Thomas then?
1: Leah Thomas is one example of that. Um, He has apparently got his penis out in a women's changing rooms, allegedly. There's a notorious case in um, LA, at a spa in LA, which I write about in my book, where a transgender woman, as they call them, uh, took his clothes off and had a semi-erect penis. And one of the people in the changing rooms was a a girl, a minor. That's very serious. And you know, what's interesting to me is that some strands of feminism have spent the past few years telling us that everything is misogyny. If you look at, there's a movement in the UK called Everyday Sexism. And they used to draw up these lists of all the misogynistic experiences that women have every day. And they would say things like, You know, when the waiter comes to your table after you've had your meal, he always gives the bill to my boyfriend, never to me. That was an example of everyday sexism. Or you go to the bar and you order a drink, you order a pint, and the barman thinks, do you want half a pint rather than a full pint? You know, that's misogyny because he's making this presumption about a woman. These were genuinely treated for the past few years under the kind of crazy liberal feminism that was in the ascendancy as examples of sexism. Now, some of those same feminists are defending the trans ideology. They are turning a blind eye when men are walking around with their dicks out, flashing them at women. We used to call that flashing. Now we call it trans rights. And they're saying, well, you know, don't make a fuss about that, you bigots. So there's a real um, problem with this. Uh, And by the way, I... Should say that in the UK, many many feminists that are at the forefront of challenging the trans ideology. So this is not but they're all old. They're I wouldn't say they're <laughs> old, but they're 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 of, they're of a certain age, middle aged or uh, they're suddenly older. They remember sexism. They remember sexism. They remember um, they don't want blokes in their changing rooms. They they were you know <laughs> they're sensible and they a lot of them come from a left wing perspective. So they have a slightly more radical. Approach to these issues than the kind of upper middle class liberal feminists who came up in the 1990s and the 2000s. So, um, something really weird is going on. And I do think we need to talk about it more, which is one of the reasons I write about transgenderism in my book.
0: Which I think is, you devote two chapters to yes, it. Yes. Yes.
1: Two so chapters. So, it's her
0: penis. Yeah. And it's the chapter, The Love That Dare Not Speak Its Name. Yeah.
1: Yeah, that's chapter seven, I think. Yes, because uh, in her penis, I look at basically the irrationalism of this ideology and also the way in which the manipulation of languages always leads to manipulating thought and controlling thought. And then in The Love That Dare Not Speak Its Name, I look at the way in which the trans ideology is undermining not only women's rights uh, and biological reason, but also gay rights as well. Because what's happening there is that we now have... This is another bizarre and contradictory situation that we face. We now have a situation where lots of young gay men, I guess, in their teens, young gay boys and lots of young lesbians are now being surgically corrected to turn them into the supposed correct sex. You know, young lesbians, the the vast majority of young women who go for treatment to turn them into men the vast majority of them are people who would have previously identified as lesbians and they're having their breasts cut off and they're taking drugs to give them, which gives them a beard and breaks their voice. And once your voice is broken, it, as actual men know, it doesn't go back. So it has a radical transformative effect on their life and on their fertility and on every aspect of their being as a, as a woman. So we now have a situation where over the past few decades, Uh, Gay rights activists have said, conversion therapy is terrible. Look at these horrible redneck Christians in America who are praying, you know, getting these gay kids into church and praying and throwing the Bible at them and all that stuff, which, you know, can be pretty nasty. But at least those redneck Christians only try to pray the gay away. At least they didn't mutilate these kids. At least they didn't castrate them. At least they didn't give them double mastectomies. At least they didn't give them drugs that radically transformed their bodies and had a destructive impact on their bodies. So you have a situation where the supposedly correct-thinking section of society, which would look down its nose at Christianity and conversion therapy and all the horrible things that people on the right or people on uh, in traditional religious communities do, are now doing things which are infinitely more barbaric and infinitely more destructive and infinitely more homophobic. Because, you know, the only... the, the other country that does all this already is Iran. Iran is second only to Thailand. We all know Thailand (laughs) has its ladyboy population. Iran is second only to Thailand in the numbers of uh, trans surgery it carries out. And the reason for that is because Iran is a violently homophobic country, and it would prefer to turn gay men into women and lesbians into men Rather than having gay men and lesbians in its society.
0: As Ahmadinejad said a few years ago, uh, we don't have any gay people in Iran.
1: Because they have trans them into straight people, they trans the gay away. And um, the Ayatollah Khomeini issued a, a, what do they call them? A fatwa. In the 60s, when he was in exile, saying um, trans. Transing is okay because we've got to get rid of these. So he was really homos. progressive. He was so, in, in the eyes of the Guardian and the TikTok generation, he was really there at the very beginning in the 60s. One of the front runners. Real front runner for trans rights. And so um, you do, every now and then, you do kind of ha- find yourself catching your breath and thinking, what is going on? Why are some feminists defending the right of men to walk around with their cocks out amongst female children? Yes, why? Why, And and, and then another question, why are some gay rights activists defending the surgical mutilation of young gay people? And I think it's because, and this is something I try and get at in the book, we have entered a new age of unreason. We've entered a new age of hysteria where the constant churn of political correctness or wokeness or whatever we're supposed to call it, none of those terms are really satisfactory to describe what I would consider to be a grave assault on the enlightenment itself but the constant churn of that counter enlightenment is is just rolling over all the good positive ideas that we take we took for granted for the past few decades female uh, sexual equality gay rights freedom of speech scientific reason all these things uh, racial equality i think because i have a chapter about race as well all these things that have grown and developed over the past few decades are now being destroyed by this age of unreason and there's been a there's a real step back in relation to progressive ideas and I know progressive is a controversial word because to some people's minds it means something good to other people's minds it means something awful but what I mean by it is ideas which help to push society forward and they are now all being undone by the unreason that has gripped sections of the elite and their foot
0: soldiers. Well, there used to be a word to describe someone who was against the enlightenment. I think it's called a reactionary.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and we have a lot of them around now. But the but the great um the difficult thing of course is that these people don't think of themselves as reactionary. They think of themselves as radical leftists and um they think they're the heirs to Martin Luther King. They think they're in the same line. They think the right of a, a trans woman to take a dump in a woman's toilet, they think that's on a par with the right of Rosa Parks to sit wherever she wanted to sit on the bus. That is literally what they think, which to me is such a repulsive comparison. I've heard people make that comparison, that the right of trans people to go into certain spaces toilets, changing rooms, is comparable to the right of Rosa Parks to sit at the front of the bus. That's how delusional they are. And, of course, these things are completely and utterly incomparable. When Rosa Parks sat on the front of the bus, she was making a great strike for civil rights, for uh, public equality, for her freedom to choose how to engage with the public sphere. That was a wonderful expression of her desire for freedom, uh, which inspired hundreds of thousands of people to make uh, similar Uh, uh, stabs for freedom in the public sphere. When someone says, I must have the right to go into that toilet and I must have the right to walk around naked in this changing room, regardless of who it offends, that is an incredibly narcissistic, self-obsessed, egotistical desire to do whatever you want even if people around you don't want you to do it, even if people, even if it goes against every established norm that we've had for decades. So it's, a, it's incredibly self-serving. It has no positive public impact whatsoever. So I think it's just really important, I think, to look at what's changed in terms of what is described as progressive today in terms, in relation to what was
0: described as progressive in the past. Do you remember the first time I interviewed you? I think so. Was it in London? You, I mean, you do a lot of interviews. I so do a lot did, of it, it was in Stockholm. It was in a very nice hotel at I remember. the top of Hunde yep. Gordon. Uh-huh. Uh, I came, came there with th- this same equipment and tried to rig it up. And I was a technical idiot. I still am. <laughs> um, and um, I went through all of your, uh, well, uh, texts in, on, in Spike Online. And then at the end of the interview, I asked you, how can you term yourself a Marxist? Mm. You know, considering your positions on on all of these all subjects. And you you said, well, I still have a Marxist perspective. I, I, but but he, here's the thing, because you grew up in England, mm-hmm. and it's never really been a socialist country. No. No, it's a class society still. Uh, it has large swaths of uh, conservatives in all strata, <laughs> really, mm-hmm. of society. And... Here's my, my take on it. Uh, what happens when you have an idea or a demand for radical equality or equity, as they say nowadays, what you have to do is you have to take away, um, well, the difference between the sexes, because otherwise there's a difference between the sexes, and that's, is, that is not equal. And you have to get rid of all hierarchies in society, because they are uh, a sign of difference between people. And there can't be any family because family uh, promotes individuality. Uh, The way you grow up, the the values your parents imbibe you with uh, contribute to make you an individual and make you different than other Mm. people. So, I mean, preferably in a communist society, the state would be responsible for the upbringing of the children, right? And then you have to get rid of religion uh, because religion... Uh, well, it's not actually uh, that it differentiates people. that depends on the religion, uh, but it is a competitor of uh, socialism. Mm. Uh, but what happens when you take away uh, but it is uh, it is also a system of morality, religion, uh, and uh, Marxism has its own system of morality. but what happens when you take away all these what I would say the leg the four legs that human hu- human life stands on is that uh, humanity reverts back to its mean, which is uh, a heathen uh, with a relativist worldview, and where truth does not exist, and everything is subjective. Uh, Different gods in a polytheist society, they, they compete with each other, right? But if there's just one god, then there's one truth. If there's many gods, there may be many truths. And I think that is uh, what we see happening. So do you still call yourself a Marxist? (laughs)
1: Um, Well, sometimes I do, and sometimes I can't be bothered. Uh, But I will come on to answer your question in a moment. I think, um, I, I, I mean, what I've discovered is that there's no point trying to defend Marxism as an idea. I think the point I used to make in the past is, you know, I'm like those annoying fans of rock bands who will always say, I prefer the early stuff. I'm like that with Marx. I like yeah, but the, he
0: was a liberal in his young age. Yeah, I like <laughs> the writing of
1: Marx. I like the writing of Engels. Um, I like the writing of some Russian re- revolutionaries, pre-Stalin, of course. I think they, there's lots of intellectual stuff there um, and useful stuff and, and very pro-freedom stuff. Uh, Marx's writings on press freedom are brilliant and um, right up to Trotsky even Trotsky when he was in Mexico in the 1930s wrote some great stuff on press freedom and freedom of speech that's he, what
0: your Wikipedia's page says that yeah, you're a Trotskyist
1: yeah and he, he was a stinging critic of the Left not only in obviously in Stalinist Russia who eventually killed Trotsky, but also he was critical of the left in Mexico and in America itself for always looking to the state to control the far right or to censor dangerous voices. And he said, no, 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 don't ever do that. So um, there was a liberal strain in Marxist thought for a long time. And then... Obviously, it just collapsed, you know, in Stalinist Russia, it was a tyranny. Um, the communist parties in Western Europe were dreadful, absolutely dreadful. And even after the Hungarian revolt, when which was viciously put down by uh, the Soviets, even then they still, lots of Western communist parties carried on aligning with the Soviet Union, which was an unforgivable act of betrayal of that Hungarian movement for freedom, as one example. Um, so, no, it's... It's not a particularly useful word anymore, I think, Marxist. But I think the, in relation to your broader question, which was very well put, you're absolutely right that there is a threat to all those things. Uh, the family, uh, religious freedom or religious belief or religious culture, um, individual sensibilities, all of those things are under threat today, but not from communism. From, they're under threat from our own governments. Um, it would you'd be hard pressed to call the government of the United Kingdom a communist government. I mean, it's a it's a, it's a rubbish conservative government, which is not particularly conservative and not particularly inspiring. But it's under those kinds of governments now that the family is being encroached upon all the time. There are so many social measures and policies which actually have the impact of undermining the sovereignty of the family and the integrity of the family and the and the uh, authority of parents. And I think the trans ideology contributes to that because one of the key arguments put forward by trans activists today, and there's a big fight about this in Britain at the moment, um, is that children should be allowed to come out as trans at school and the school should not tell the parents. And there's this big tussle, should parents have the right to know if their kids are trans? Of course they should have the right to know. If your 13 year old son is going to school and putting on a dress, And going into the girls' changing rooms, you have a right to know. But all of these have this very corrosive impact on parental authority and the tight-knit nature of the family, which should be its own world in which values are imparted and ideas are imparted and and people are brought up in a particular value system. So the family is being undermined. Religion is being undermined in, in in the UK. The Church of England is undermining itself. I mean, we recently had a bishop come out and say, maybe we shouldn't say the prayer, Our Father... Because it's too patriarchal, you know the word "father" is a bit offensive. Maybe we need to think of do it a different way. Or the Archbishop of Canterbury, going to the very top, um, after the George Floyd riots, he said we need to do uh, uh, we need to examine every single church in the country, hundreds and hundreds of churches, for any painting or statue or monument which in any way has a link to slavery. So they're having this kind of woke exorcism of the churches to drive out the sins of history so they're undermining themselves they're saying look we're we're basically evil we have to cleanse ourselves and so our
0: non-binary entity that lives in heaven (laughs) hallowed be thy name exactly
1: right so and you know one of the big arguments that comes from some trans activists is that god is trans because um he's he he slash she is this uh, external being that is, defies sex. So, uh, And then, of course, individual freedom is being undermined all the time by new attacks on freedom of speech, freedom of association, um, the right to, of people to think as they want to think without being punished or discriminated against. So all those things are under assault, but not from communism. And the point I make to friends of mine on the right wing of politics, I always say to them, look, if it's communism you're worried about, you should actually be really thrilled by the rise of identity politics. Because to my mind, um, identity politics is the opposite of what we would have considered Marxism to be in the past. And I'm not saying that to big up Marxism by making it comparing it to something that we agree is terrible. But just let me finish. If you look at, um, for example, identity politics doesn't care one iota about class or it, the best is that it sees class as being on, on in the intersection with everything else, the intersection with race and gender. So it's completely demeaned the importance of class. It's very uninterested in questions of economic power and wealth and who has the wealth and how, how we can get more of it to ordinary people. It's not interested in that. It's more interested in self-definition cultural issues um the right of validation and so on it's not interested in economic growth at all in fact it is violently opposed to economic growth as we can see with movements like just stop oil and extinction rebellion and the green movement more broadly um who want to prevent economic growth they now support something called degrowth which to me is a barbaric idea to support in a in a world in which 3 billion people still live in absolute poverty so they've given up on economic growth they've given up given up on questions of class they've given up on the fundamental question of marxism which is where does economic power lie and they've moved into realms that are just incredibly narcissistic and up their own asses and and very kind of upper middle class and quite aristocratic what language do you use are you using the right pronouns are you bowing in the correct way to this Person's identity, so they've so it it's it's post-Marxism. It's it's the end of Marxism. And, I, and but I'm
0: sure you've heard the term cultural Marxism. Yeah. And what happened, in my view, is that the left lost the economic argument yeah. between 1989 and 1991 when the wall came down, and then you know there was an academic Western strand of Marxism that you know, was fighting a culture war already back then, at least in academia. uh, And they sort of took over. Now, the way I view classical Marxism is that it's basically, and I'm sorry if I offend you, but it's basically (laughs) a conspiracy theory. It it locks people in an endless class struggle uh, between good and evil. It's a moral tale uh, between the haves and the have-nots. Right. Uh, The the benefit of classical Marxism is that class is um, not something, well, you're born into it, but it can be changed. Mm -hmm. You can actually acquire a fortune or you can lose a fortune. Mm. Right. Uh, But when they had lost the economic argument, uh, suddenly they wanted it to be about sex or sexuality uh, or uh, skin color. Uh, which is something you're born into, but can never change. Mm. I mean, if you ask those people, you can, but but uh, you you can change your sex uh, and gender, whatever yeah, they call it. But you can't but, yeah. change your skin color. Yeah, because th- that would be That'd wrong. Be racist. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so so um, uh, it's not logically coherent, but but uh, yeah. uh, it's re- a relativist movement. It doesn't have to be logically coherent. Yeah,
1: I've I, I have heard that argument a few times. I mean, I do understand the term cultural Marxism. I don't think it's a particularly useful term. There's this really annoying um, knee-jerk response to it in British politics. I don't know if it's the same here. Of course it is. It's a right-wing term, an extreme right-wing term. Yeah, and people say it's anti-Semitic. So so some conservative politicians in Britain have used the term cultural Marxism and we all know what they're talking about. They're talking about the kind of thing you've just outlined there. They're talking about the way in which some people use culture, academia, the education system to try and inculcate values into the next generation and so on. And th- that does happen. There's no doubt about it. Um, but as soon as they say cultural Marxism, they're denounced as anti-Semitic. And they're denounced as anti-Semitic by people who come from a pretty anti-Semitic left, which we have a real problem with in Britain. Uh, so there's such hypocrisy there. But... My view is I don't think cultural Marxism is is an anti-Semitic term. I don't think it's a far-right term. I understand what it means. I'm not convinced it's a particularly useful term because I just think it doesn't get to the true nature of what we're currently living through for two reasons. Firstly, one argument I hear all the time from people who are kind of on my side of these, these debates is that the great clash between the classes that Marxism promoted has now just been put onto the issue of race or the issue of sex or whatever. I don't buy that. I don't buy that primarily for the reason you've outlined, which is that the point of class politics was about bringing to an end the class system. So class politics had a radically transformative program, whether one agreed with it or didn't agree with it. It wasn't just about saying, I'm working class, validate my identity and take pity on me. It was about saying, I'm working class and I want to ensure that the working class no longer exists because you would demolish that re- that social relation between the people who had who owned the means of production and the people who owned nothing more than their labor which they had to sell in order to make a living. It was about ending that relationship which was defined in Marxism as a social relation. So if it's a social relation it can be changed. So when you if you project that as the as we're being told they're doing now, when you project that onto race or sex, you completely, it, it, it stops being anything like Marxism because it doesn't have any radically transformative component whatsoever. It does become about ceaseless validation and complaint and grievance and black communities are presented as permanent victims and white people are presented as privileged. And you have this tribal tension, which is never ending and, the role of the state then becomes to manage those relations. That's why we have the race relations industry, which is a multi-billion dollar industry in the US and in Europe as well, where the state takes on the responsibility of managing the relations between the races. Or in relation to sex, there is now a huge um, system in workplaces and in universities, speech codes, anti-harassment policies, which are all devoted to managing the relations between the sexes. So what this so-called cultural Marxism does Instead of changing society or or inviting people to change their own living conditions, it creates this permanent state of, um, this permanent experience of state management of everyday life.
0: And Well, cutting off your genitals is changing your current state. Well, it doesn't change your sex. No, no, but it it does
1: change your life. It changes your, what's in your pants and it changes your life in a, in a very problematic way. But that's delusional. I'm not saying you're being delusional, but they are being delusional because they think they're changing their sex and they're not. So it, it, there are things you can't change. One of them is your sex. And yet they think they can. And then when working class communities vote for Brexit, for example, or vote for, I don't know, the the Sweden Democrats or Donald Trump, which are very clear demands for change, for a shake-up of the current political system, for for saying to the establishment, look, you've let us down time and again, we want something different. Those people who are, I think, asking for a very sensible form of change or an understandable form of change, they're looked down upon as bigots and scumbags and idiots and morons. Whereas the people who castrate themselves or have double mastectomies are seen as, you know, radical enactors of, of change. So it, there's a, a bunch of contradictions in contemporary society. I just am not convinced that it benefits us to call it Marxism. I just think, I, I just feel that that's ahistorical, historical. Um, and I think well, it's, ideas can involve. No, but I think what's driving that and now I have to say no offense to you, I think what's driving that is a is this um desire to bring the demons of the past to bear on contemporary discussion because lots of people get a kick, particularly on the American right um, there are some very sensible voices on the American rights. So I'm not criticising that. But there is this desire to rehabilitate the monster of communism, to, to make it clearer what we're up against today. And I think it can be a way of avoiding understanding the complexities of the current situation. And so, for example, why does a conservative government in Britain support trans operations yeah. for children? Well, for young people or, you know... Puberty. Because
0: that uh, that was actually my next question, anyway. Yeah. I wanted to know, because in Sweden, I mean, we still do um, uh, sex change operations or uh, correctments, as they're now called. Yeah. Um, but... Uh, we don't do it to people under 18 mm. whilst in america i follow this uh, pink-haired doctor of medicine on instagram who who brags every day on his instagram feed about how many vaginoplasties and phalloplasties he, he's doing to minors basically and I, I was wondering is that something you do in britain
1: no no in, we're the same as sweden i guess you have to be over 18 for that kind of surgical intervention but you can get Although you used to be able to get hormonal treatment under the age of 18 and under the age of 16, puberty blockers, for example, that's now proving controversial. There was a court decision saying um, people under the age of 16 are not old enough to be able to consent to that form of treatment, which I think is correct. So that's changing too. But yeah, you do have to be 18 to get it. But the thing is, um, I think there's a broader question here. You're absolutely right. You know, if, if, if doctors are taking the breasts of a 13 year old girl that is utterly unforgivable and i have no doubt that in 20 or 30 years time i hope society will look, on, look back on that in the same way we look back on lobotomies
0: it is mind boggling isn't it's it doctors that don't believe in biology yeah it's just exactly. how how do you explain that how do they live with themselves i mean how do they square it with themselves it's it's utterly surreal and and ins- it's
1: a form of insanity and the thing is that, um, you know, the Hippocratic Oath says first do no harm. I can think of very few things more harmful than taking a confused 13 year old girl into your, um, surgery and taking her breasts off. I mean, it's just repulsive. Actually.
0: It's so true. My, my American cousin, he was born without, without two of his front teeth. Uh, but he had to wait until 25 until they put put in put <laughs> in new teeth because he wasn't uh, you know uh, finished with development until mm. 25 his mm. skull was still forming. But when it comes to you know cutting off genitals, apparently there is no problem.
1: When it comes, yeah, when it comes to the sexual organs, <laughs> knock yourselves out, do whatever you want. It's um, no, we're living through a moment of insanity. There is no question about it. In the UK. There have been challenges to it so there has been this ruling in relation to puberty blockers and we're often referred to as turf island because we have so many turfs trans exclusionary radical feminists Ah, um those type of yeah gender critical
0: not like crips and blood turfs no 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 No.
1: the the good ones um gender critical feminists we have a lot of them and some of them are brilliant so they're pushing back on all of this and they're having some successes So it is a reminder that it is possible to push back against the tide of unreason, and it's essential to do so. But I just think it's such a confusing moment, just to finish my answer to your previous question, it's such a confusing moment that I think people are looking for, I think people are trying to navigate the 21st century with 20th century language. So you will have people on the left will say Donald Trump is Hitler, populism in Europe brexit and so on is fascism so they don't understand it they don't know why people are voting for trump they don't know why 17.4 million of us voted for brexit they don't get it because they're out of touch and they're aloof and they live in an echo chamber so they look for a 20th century term that makes sense to everyone this is the 1930s i mean everyone prince charles has said that the archbishop of canterbury has said it the guardian says it every day of the week so they try and make sense of it by bringing that language that clear language from the past and i think there are sections on the right who are doing something similar so they can't understand why in the free republic of the united states in 2023 doctors are taking uh, are mutilating children they can't understand why a conservative-led country like britain is doing some stupid crazy woke stuff like for example um street names being renamed and and university buildings being renamed because they have the names of problematic historical figures as one example they can't understand why that's happening so they say it's marxism it's communism it's that
0: heathenism
1: it's the it, they say it's that march through the institutions that began in the 30s Gramsci. and the 40s gramsky and, and all the rest of it all i'm saying in relation to both the left who fall back on the language of nazism and the right who fall back on the language of communism all i would say is it might be more complicated than that and it might benefit us to try and work out what is new and what is different and what is particular about this moment. And that will then, I think, make it easier for us to challenge some of the excesses of what we're living through.
0: Well, I think personally that if we in 1989 just would have uh, uh, scourged the socialist from academia, we wouldn't be in this situation. <laughs> um, You take up the terms birthing parent and chest feeding Mm. uh, in uh, the chapter Her Penis. I was wondering what you think about the new term for vagina, bonus hole.
1: Oh, my God. It just gets worse all the time, doesn't it? I mean, they're just pornographic terms now. This comes from pornographic films so i understand i've read about someone said that in an article i read um no it's just disgusting bonus hole uh, the, the dehumanization of women's bodies i do feel like sometimes i feel like i'm becoming a radical feminist which is you know you and i have had discussions about the problem of feminism in the past and we should carry on having those discussions but i do sometimes feel like i'm turning into a radical feminist because you wake up and you read an article and it says You know, people have been encouraged to refer to vaginas as bonus holes. Or um, in America, uh, African-American mothers are now referred to as black birthing bodies. And you think, hold on, when did we go back to slavery? I'm sure that's what they said in in the slavery era. You know, buy this black birthing body. She'll be great in your uh, picking. It does sound a
0: bit impersonal.
1: Horrendous. In fact, there's some um, uh, there are some black women in america who are gender critical who are making this point that the dehumanizing language about black birthing bodies in particular echoes the language of slavery um and the way women were talked about back then yeah and we see it across western europe as well we see bonus holes chest feeding uh, there was this recent controversy in the uk where um itv news which is one of our main news channels they did a piece about um mothers who are struggling in the cost of living crisis And they interviewed one mother for this piece, who was a man who identifies as a mother because he has a son or a child. And it was a big controversy and lots of women said, couldn't you talk to a real woman? Couldn't you find one real mother in this country of 67 million people who is struggling in the cost of living crisis? And then this man who identifies as a mother, he responded to the controversy by releasing on Twitter a photograph of himself breastfeeding his kid. Chest feeding. Chest feeding. Well, in this case, it was chest feeding. So So, starving his kid. Right? Because men cannot, I can't believe we have to say this. Men cannot breastfeed. Men do not lactate. And even men who have got, who've had hormonal treatment to grow fake breasts do not lactate. They cannot produce milk. And in fact, it's very unwise, according to doctors, for them to put their nipples into a child's mouth because they excrete hormonal residue from all the drugs that are pumping through their body. Because, of course, if you're trans, you have to take drugs every day for the rest of your life, otherwise you're fucked. So um, when he released this photograph of himself breastfeeding his um, kid, people were really horrified. Because that's not normal behavior. And some people said, this looks like a fetish. And in fact, then subsequently people found photographs of him uh, on Instagram, wearing nipple clamps. So.
0: And this happened in Sweden years, right? and years ago. There was a, there was a a man who, um, um, as an experiment, had a blog. This was in the era where blogs were a thing. Uh, he uh, attempted to breastfeed his child. Of course, they had to give him formula as well, because uh, yeah, obviously he can't do it. No, uh, so but he he wasn't. Uh, uh, frowned upon by Swedish society. He was brought into state television and treated like a fucking hero. Well, that's, so- a,
1: that's what happened with this breastfeeding bloke in the UK. Um, he was supported by sections of the Labour Party, of obviously by ITV News, by the Twitter Twitterati. They all said, look, he is a mother. They all said, she is a mother. Um, and so I wrote a piece for Spike just saying, this is an act of provocation against ordinary people. This is not just um, an innocent... Uh, oh look at me chest-feeding my kid and, and you know when the establishment lined up behind him and cheered him on that was an act of provocation that was just they were just making fun of us they're laughing in our faces they're lying to us they're offending us with these images of obscene acts and then calling them motherhood they're saying a vagina is a bonus hole they're saying this man should be allowed to take his clothes off in wherever he wants they are provoking us day in, day out, and they're gaslighting us. And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important for people to start speaking out on these things, because if we allow, allow ourselves to be gaslit, we will just go crazy.
0: But you aren't deplatformed, right? I see you uh, on Australian news, I see you on British news, I see you on American news, uh, but you have that type of job. I mean, you are a professional heret- heretic Uh, most people have normal jobs. Yeah. Yes. And they need them to support their families. Yes.
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, so,
0: I I mean, there is an economic Mm -hmm. incentive, I suppose is the word, uh, to not speak out, at least. uh, And then there's a social incentive that is quite strong as well, because you don't want to be labeled a bigot, racist, Nazi, fascist, pig, scum, whatever.
1: Yeah, and that's a really important point, and one that we shouldn't um, dismiss because it is fairly easy for me to say these things because I, that's my job. As you say, it's my job to write a book called the heretics manifesto and to write about controversial issues. Um,
0: And if everyone spoke out, you wouldn't have a job.
1: That's very true. So (laughs) everyone shut up. Don't say anything. Um, No, but I you know, and I do, I have been no platformed at universities like Oxford, for example, and there are, Usually when I speak at university, there's a protest, there's a the gathering of people calling me a bigot and shouting at me. So those things happen. But it's part of my job and part of my responsibility, I think, to be able to deal with all that stuff. Um, I know you've had similar issues. So you're right. But, but the question then becomes, why do people feel they can't speak out? What makes them think they will lose their job, lose their income, which does happen? Uh, Gender critical women, to, to go back to that example, who are not as well known as JK Rowling, not as rich, who are, who are not professional feminists like some of the other TERFs are, um, they feel they can't speak out. I get emails from women all the time, all the time, uh, messages via Instagram or email saying, I'm glad you write about the trans issue because I can't say anything about it. Um, so that's one of the reasons we have to challenge cancel culture because people think um, the problem with cancel culture is that every now and then someone is silenced, every now and then someone is banished from polite society, or JK Rowling is subjected to abuse day in, day out. They think that's the problem. But the real, th- those things are problems. But the real problem is the trickle down effect that cancel culture has, the chilling effect it has across society because it sends a message to everyone that says, if J.K. Rowling can be subjected to rape and death threats every day of her life online for saying that biology is real, imagine what will happen to you. Imagine what will happen to you, the the, the lowly receptionist at some big business, if you go online and say uh, men with people with penises are not women. Imagine what will happen. That's what it says. It's it's a threat to everyone else, and the cancel culture mob. I think is is quite acutely aware of this. They know that they go for the big names, they try and take down people like you, they attack, they moan about people like me, they go after better known people, but they know that what they're really doing is policing the parameters of acceptable thought. They know that they are marching around the borders of what they consider to be the, the acceptable things to think and the acceptable things to say. They know that's what they're doing and, and it's effective. So, um, yeah, you're right. There are people out there who are afraid to speak out for either economic reasons or, or because they fear social ostracism. And um, I think we have to c- create the conditions in which those people feel freer to say what they want to say.
0: Chilling effect is an interesting term, uh, considering that you have a chapter on witches accused of controlling the weather. <laughs> Uh so um I think I, I wrote it down here somewhere um I'm guessing you're still not a convert to the cult of Saint Greta blessed be her name Absolutely not. No. There was uh, some type of witch's trial in England. Mm. I wrote down the it was um Agnes Sampson. Yes. The
1: North Berwick witch trials. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, so that's the second chapter of the book, which is called Witch Finding. And it's basically about basically making the point that um, many of the witch trials of the 1500s, 1600s and early 1700s were really about climate change. Uh, One of the key accusations made against these women and sometimes men, but mostly women, was that they were causing contrary weather because this was the era of the Little Ice Age. So it was a very cold period, especially in Northern Europe, which is where most of these witch trials took place. Um, so crops were failing, people were starving, society, communities were suffering. So people went looking for the scapegoat, the person they could blame, and that's when they would, there would always be explosions in witch hunts um, during particularly cold periods and particularly moments of crop failure. Um, and these women were accused of causing contrary weather, causing winter, win, wintry weather, causing terrible storms and winds. So Agnes Sampson was one of, I think, twenty five witches were killed in North Berwick in Scotland uh, in the. Late, and that's more than the Salem witch. More tr- than the Salem witch trials, it's it's quite well known. The North Berwick witch trials are quite well known in the UK.
0: No, first time I've ever heard. Yeah,
1: but that. outside of the UK, not particularly well known. Um, Nicholas Sturgeon, who was our first minister. Um, apologized for the North Berwick witch trials a couple of years ago and at the time I made the point well when is she going to apologize for the witch hunting of Scottish feminists who don't think men can become women but yeah so what's interesting I think is that we had climate witch hunts 400-500 years ago and we have climate witch hunts today because one of the striking things about the climate change hysteria is the resuscitation of the at, at least the feeling of the witch trial. So people are called climate criminals. If you drive too much, or put your kettle on too much, or go on holiday too much, you're seen as being a destroyer of the planet. Big businesses are constantly being called, you know, climate destroyers, and they're all c- accused of causing contrary weather. They're all, or we call it, we call it weather of mass destruction these but days. But now it's
0: not cold. It's now it's hot. Yes. Um,
1: or, or, you know, the new term is global boiling. Yes. See, the United Nations now calls it global boiling, which is just absolutely preposterous. And
0: still more people die of cold than not heat. And still heat.
1: more people die of cold. And that's what really gets my goat about the current global boiling hysteria. Firstly, you know, who the hell do they think they are to invent these terms out of thin air? And why are so many people taking them on board? Why do people... So, so many people on the left in particular who ought to be a bit suspicious of people in in positions of power, as soon as a propagandistic term like global boiling comes from the United Nations, they start start bowing down to it and saying this is the new term. They'll all start saying global boiling now, even though it's complete nonsense. And the the truth of the matter is, more people still die from cold weather, not only in places like Sweden and England, which get quite cold in the winter, but in India, um, in Italy, more people die from cold globally actually. and globally. Yeah. So, um, and in fact, one of the points made by Bjorn Lomborg and others is that at the moment, the warming trend that we are currently living through for whatever reason might be saving lives. Because if winter nights in the UK, for example, which has been the case, if they're a bit warmer than they used to be a few years ago, a few decades ago, um, fewer people will die as a consequence of severe cold. So um, at the moment, global warming or whatever we're supposed to call it, I don't even like that term if I'm being honest, um, seems to be saving lives. And it seems to me that if the planet really is getting hotter, then the logical thing to do is to acclimatize to it, have better air conditioning, have more open public swimming pools, create the conditions in which people can cool down, build new housing with uh, around the possibility that it will be very hot in the summertime. We know how to do this. In the United States, It's been getting hotter over the past few decades, but fewer people are dying from heat because they've got air conditioning.
0: But air conditioning is bad for the climate.
1: Exactly. There's this new... um, This is one of the great contradictions where I was on British TV news, uh, Sky News in the UK a couple of years ago, and they said to me, what should we do about uh, the heating planet? And I said, let's have more air conditioning. And everyone went crazy thinking I was being flippant, but I wasn't being flippant at all. That is what we should do. But of course, they won't do it because it uses energy, which is a terrible thing to do. It produces CO2s, which is tantamount to evil. And so they won't do that. So you think to yourself, well, what do you want? What do you want us to do? And what they really want us to do is to basically reverse the Industrial Revolution, go back in time, switch everything off, have less, leave Africa as it is, because if they have cities like stockholm or london or new york then the planet will fry so leave them in poverty we don't care about them and just wind everything down that's really what they're saying
0: and less people
1: and fewer people and less cl- less uh air conditioning less production fewer factories they it's it really is a demand to wind back the great gains of the industrial revolution the point i make is The Industrial Revolution is without question, in my mind, it is without question the best thing that has happened to humankind ever. In all the wonderful things that we've done over the past 3,000 years, in particular 5,000 years, the best is the Industrial Revolution. It changed everything. It radically transformed every aspect of our lives, not only in terms of living longer and the creation of health systems and and, um, healthier communities over time, But also that's where freedom comes from because if you're forced into a city with hundreds of thousands of other people you start politically organizing you start calling for more rights you start saying children shouldn't go up chimneys they should be in school educational rights come from the industrial revolution everything good that we enjoy was pushed into the forefront by the industrial revolution. I am so suspicious of anyone who's anti-industrial revolution, which is people like Greta Thunberg and the entire Green Movement and huge sections of the political class itself.
0: Well, Justice finally caught up with Greta the other day. She was uh, convicted of, uh, I think, what? how do you translate it? Not listening to the police. Uh, she was she was uh, <laughs> protesting some uh, oil refinery yeah. in Malmö or whatever. The Ramallah of the North, as I call it.
1: Well, um, <laughs> yeah, but the, what was really striking about that protest with Greta and the Malmö oil refinery, there's some pictures from that. I wrote about them, and I think they capture environmentalism so well, because you had Greta and her spoilt brat friends sitting down in the road. And you could see that none of them had ever done a day's work. They're all like 17 or 18 or 19 or 20. Probably come from nice backgrounds oh, she does. like she
0: does. And the She's rest of a, them do she, it, as know, well. Um, cultural aristocracy. Yeah, and
1: her mother's an opera singer, and I'm sure yes. they're all well-to-do kids. And then in the background, blurred out, because they were in the background, you could see these blokes, working-class Swedes, standing by their trucks, kind of texting and looking bored, Wanting to be productive, wanting to do a job that is absolutely essential for Swedish society, as it is in every uh, European country, which is to deliver oil, deliver energy, make sure that the country keeps moving. Um, and I just thought it was such a good snapshot of the narcissism and classism of the green movement that you would have these spoilt brats sitting in the road blocking the right of working class men to do an essential job.
0: Well, you did teach me a new word in your book, "gammon." I hadn't <laughs> heard I hadn't heard it before. And they are the ones working in those types of places. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, for you, Swedish listeners, it means pork uh, because yeah. uh, Brexit were apparently uh, fat and red-faced yeah. like pigs. Yeah. Uh, and you do a wonderful analogy to how. Uh, the nobility of England used to talk about, the throngs, the the masses. The swinish multitude. Yes.
1: Yeah. Uh, Yeah, I tried to bring history into the book a little bit just to, to look at what's similar between then and now. And the gammon thing was such a good example of that. So in the UK, the political left, the kind of bourgeois left, they've been using the term gammon for a few years now to describe, as you say, Brexit voters, lower middle-class, working-class men, largely red-faced, overlooking the fact that often these men have red faces because they've been working outdoors for decades, building things and having wind blowing in their faces. And
0: also drinking a lot of beer. And
1: drinking beer in the pub after work, absolutely. And, you know, I think about the people, the men I grew up with, and I come from an Irish community in, in, in North London, They often were red-faced because, well, firstly, because they came from wind-swept parts of Ireland where they were being battered by winds their whole lives. And then they worked on building sites and they drank in the pubs. Um, So I just found the whole, I always found the term gammon so disgusting because, as you say, it means pig. They were being referred, people were being referred to as pig meat. That's how the working classes were being referred to by the bourgeois left. And then I was looking back through history, and I found out that there was this journal in the seventeen late 1700s in Britain. There was a radical journal called Pig's Meat, And I thought, that's interesting. Why, why was that? And of course, it was because Edmund Burke, very famous conservative thinker in, in British history, Edmund, Edmund Burke wrote about the French Revolution. He was very worried about the French Revolution. And he said that the swinish multitude is rising up. So you refer to them as swines, working radical working class people as swines, and so radical working class people in Britain started to run with this analogy of swines, and they had magazines called Pigs Meat, and um, uh, so they made it their own. They made it their own. They kind of reclaimed it, and they said, "We yes, we are swine, and we demand rights and so on." And and they said, it's, "We'd rather be a swinish multitude than a a a porker." you know drinking and eating all day long that's how they saw the aristocracy so i just thought it was very interesting that you can have 250 years separation and yet a similar pig based insult was being used against ordinary people it was being used in the late 1700s and the early 1800s against people who wanted the right to vote or who thought that ordinary people should have more input into political life and it's been used in the in the uk in the 2020s to refer to people who voted for brexit who are a bit populist who want to be taken seriously and who oppose the establishment in both cases they were referred to as pigs you know imagine calling human beings pigs it's just beyond belief and that is how dehumanizing this woke culture has become
0: where uh People but are just... now the new aristocracy is lefts, or at least yeah. they claim to be leftists. Yes,
1: yeah. uh, the, the the word, there's no question about it. The, the insult gammon comes from the left, and it comes from the bourgeois left, the kind of influential left. You know, we're not talking about just the old bedraggled left-wing man who sells newspapers on the street corner. We're talking about the cultural left, <laughs> going back to cultural Marxism, but the, the cultural left who are, influ- who are influential in the media and in uh, cultural sphere and at the BBC and in The Guardian. You know, these are very influential institutions, and the word gammon came from those kinds of people. And it was unquestionably a, cu- a classist insult that was used to demonize ordinary people whose only crime was to vote to leave the European Union.
0: And I, not, I was
1: one of those people. and I remember. So lots of my friends and my family. So for those people to be called pigs,
0: no, it's disgusting. Maybe you should reclaim the word. <laughs> yes. Yeah.
1: Gammon on a shirt
0: yes why not <laughs> merchandise is a great way to yeah, make money and if you true. know me i love that's capitalism <laughs> so um um it is uh, i wanted to um talk a bit about the chapter islamo censorship because mm-hmm. at the moment uh we have inflation in sweden as i'm sure you do because of brexit in your case yeah of uh, course. but we also have an inflation in quran burnings now <laughs> You do, yes, so um, and it's fascinating, yeah, and uh, Iran has uh, Iran's supreme leader, bless yeah. him be his name, uh Ayatollah Khomeini, not Khomeini, mm-hmm. but uh, because they're all named pretty much the same uh he has said that Sweden has waged a war on the Muslim world it's
1: so interesting, i did want to, I wanted to get your views on this as well, why you think it's happening, but th- to me um I think something so strange has happened in Western society over the past few decades, which is that it's become almost illegal. In fact, in the UK you can be punished in law and in France um, for being mean about Islam. So for example, in France, um, Michelle Welbeck, the famed celebrated novelist was taken to court for calling Islam the stupidest religion. Um, in the UK, in Austria, a woman was punished in a court of law for referring to Muhammad as a paedophile. Uh, sometimes the punishment is extrajudicial. We saw that with the Charlie Hebdo massacre um, or the beheading of Samuel Paty, the French schoolteacher who, who had his head cut off on the streets of Paris because he showed an image of Muhammad to his school kids. Um, in the UK, there's a schoolteacher who's still in hiding. He's been in hiding for two years because he showed an image of Muhammad in a classroom discussion about freedom of speech and um, a fundamentalist mob turned up at the school gates and threatened to take action. Um, In the UK, we've seen films being pulled from cinemas under pressure from Muslim mobs. Um, And of course, then to top it all off, if that's the right phrase, we saw um, Salman Rushdie. They finally got to Salman Rushdie and he lost, he lost the use of an eye and a hand. So that's, That's the contemporary punishment for criticizing Islam, an eye and a hand. This is just obscene in every level. And what's most shocking about it, which is why I wrote that chapter, is that, you know, there is a real problem with Islamist mobs. There's a real problem with radical Islam, I think, in our societies. It's become a very dangerous phenomenon which actually kills people. Um, hundreds of people have been slaughtered in Western Europe over the past decade uh, at the hands of radical Islamists. Scores in Britain alone, the Manchester Arena bombing, which targeted young girls at an Ariana Grande concert, which killed 21 people. This is a very serious problem, but we're discouraged from talking about it. Because if you talk about it, you will be accused of Islamophobia. Why are you obsessing on this issue? You know, the the, 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 phobia
0: is a word that denotes irrational fear. Yeah, this is a very rational fear. So
1: it's it's very rational to be concerned about the growth of his radical Islam and the violence of radical Islam. Very rational indeed. And so I think um, what's interesting to me is the interplay between radical Islamists on the one side who want to crush any criticism of their religion and the cowardly elites on the other who are basically doing what they're being told. So they are demonizing criticize criticism of islam they are arresting people in some cases or they are institutionalizing the term islamophobia the police use that term Uh, educational institutions use that term politicians use it Um, it, so it's the it's the connection between those two things that i find really worrying because there's always going to be radical nutters in our societies there's always going to be people who say don't do this don't do that otherwise i'll kill you that will always be a problem. But what's particularly problematic right now is that it, officialdom in Europe, instead of saying, hold on, you're not allowed to make those demands. These are free countries in which people should be allowed to say whatever they want about any religion. They should be able to mock Muhammad. They should be able to desecrate the Quran, They should be able to criticize every Islamist belief. So shut the hell up. Instead of saying that, they say, oh, yes, you're absolutely right. If someone criticizes your religion, it's, it's bigotry. If someone um, says anything questionable about the Quran, that's a punishable offense. We should really deal with those people. So w- the establishment is kowtowing to the radicals, and that is emboldening the radicals. And I think that's the problem we
0: have. I think that's, um, that goes for all bullying, really. If you, yeah. uh, if you, uh, if you don't uh, hit the bully, yeah. you will continue. Yeah, well, you have to hit back, actually. Yeah that that's usually how you deal with it. Uh, No, I've talked about it on this podcast before, but in Swedish. Uh, But what really was, uh, uh, I think, beyond the veil uh, was uh, when uh, Sweden's Christian council, I mean, we have a very weak Christian minority here. uh, And the Christian council uh, came out and said that it should be illegal to burn the Quran. And then our leftist media, the journalist, actually asked a follow-up question, which is quite unusual for, mm-hmm. for our, our, our media. Uh, but he said, so do you think it should be legal to burn a Bible? And she said, no, I don't think that's wow. uh, equally, uh, that's not as sensitive as burning a Quran. And then he followed up again, but don't you think it's pretty much the same thing? And she, she, she doubled down. She's like, no, it's not the same thing.
1: You see that's racist see one of the things that worries me about the islamophobia idea is that it presents itself as anti-racism but it's it's a racist idea the idea that muslim communities need some kind of special protection distinct from every other community the christians don't need it um, jews don't need it in fact open season on jews most of the time they don't need special protection they don't need censorship censorship laws they don't need um the heads of christian councils or think tanks or government bodies or whatever else to say oh poor you i'm so sorry you had to hear that offensive word
0: Yeah we have a sense of humor
1: yeah well, well exactly <laughs> but it's like um it, it's it, it, there is um the idea that muslims are evil and are to blame for every ill in our society that's a racist idea I think. That's a
0: prejudiced idea. It's also an anti-enlightenment idea because an anti- yes. enlightenment is about universal rights. Exactly. For everyone. So Same in, rights for everyone. But I think there's a there's, there are two sides to
1: this. So so the idea that Muslims are evil is a racist idea. It's a bigoted idea. But the idea that Muslims are incapable of evil is also a racist idea. That's also a bigoted idea. The idea that they are incapable of hearing robust criticisms of their ideologies or their belief system that's a racist idea so there's a there's a powerful strain of racial paternalism in the woke left and in woke institutions that want to protect muslims from any form of criticism that that that's racial paternalism well that's a, that's a religious paternalism and i find that really off-putting but you know it is worth thinking about the consequences of the obsession with Islamophobia. Uh, just to give you one example, the Manchester Arena bombing, 2017, there's now been 21 people killed. There's now been th- a very long inquiry into how this happened, a three-pronged inquiry into how the young man was radicalised, what he did on the night itself, and then the emergencies uh, response: The ambulances, the police, and so on. How they responded because they responded really badly to the bombing. In the middle section, what happened on the night itself? There is such a such an interesting passage in the Inquiry's report, which is that this young man Salman Abedi, who I think was twenty one when he blew himself up, he what he got to the Manchester Arena two hours before he blew himself up. He was carrying a rucksack that was so big he could barely carry it. He was shuffling around in the foyer with this huge rucksack some people said they saw him praying or mumbling and yet he wasn't questioned or accosted and one of the security guards on duty said the reason he didn't approach him is because he was worried about being accused of islamophobia and one of the fathers who was waiting there to pick up his daughter from this concert he saw Salman Abedi with this rucksack uh, struggling around, hardly able to carry his bomb. It was so huge. He saw him and he went up to the security guards and said, that's something, something's wrong there. That, that man shouldn't be here. It looks very, very questionable. And they said, oh, there's nothing we can do about it. And about 15 minutes later, the bomb went off and 21 people killed. Lots of other people got nails in their faces and arms blown off and so on. That's where you go as a society if you instill this fear in people of seeing to be critical of Islam, you create the most horrific situation imaginable where lives are actually lost as a result of cultural sensitivities, as they would refer to it as a result of people's fear of appearing Islamophobic lives were literally lost as a consequence of that. So, um, we do have to stand up for the free society, freedom of speech, robust, critical debate. And I think it, it's, it would be a brilliant blow for equality if we said to the Muslim community, um, oh, look, we want you to be equal to everyone else. So part of that equality is the equality of criticism the equality of being part of uh, robust discussions, disagreeable ideas, people saying things that you won't like, that's part of being an equal citizen in a free society. And that's and also what an we adult. Take. And an adult.
0: Yeah. I remember your piece after the bombing, um, actually, um, because um, uh, we had a, a, a terrorist attack in Stockholm. A guy drove a truck down yeah. Drottninggatan, on one of our main shopping streets, and killed four or five people, one of them a little girl. Uh, Not as bad, obviously, as but you shouldn't uh, compare suffering. Mm. Uh, And we were, uh, uh, from on high, uh, we were told to respond with love instead of rage. And I remember your piece after Mm. the Manchester bombing was, uh, no, uh, rage is a a very appropriate response to this action.
1: Absolutely. But, you know, one of the things I find so... Worrying about the radical Islamist problem in Europe is that we are constantly told to move on. You know that after the Manchester Arena bombing, um, everyone was singing the Oasis song "Don't Look Back in Anger." That became the an- the
0: anthem. Wow! Don't look really? back in anger, and um, the only person so not an Ariana Grande song. No,
1: don't look back in <laughs> anger, and the only person who spoke out about that against that was Morrissey. <laughs> who said, no, look back in anger, get angry about this. Um, And then I wrote my piece as well saying, where's the anger, why are we not angry? Um, But it happens all the time. Every single terrorist attack these days in Europe, we are told, lay some flowers, maybe put the French flag or the British flag or the Swedish flag in, in your Instagram for a few days and then move on. You know, don't obsess about it. Don't think about it. It's too horrible. It's too Islamophobic. Um, so there are lots of terrorist attacks. I sometimes do this thing where I say to friends of mine or people I meet or whatever, I, I ask them if they remember certain terrorist attacks because people are. In, there's this institutionalised amnesia where we are actually encouraged by the powers that be to forget about these things.
0: Things are memory holes. Yeah.
1: So, for example, the bombing in Brussels was it five years ago, six years ago, killed thirty-five people.
0: A Swede was among the perpetrators. Uh,
1: you're right. No one remembers that. I asked. Uh, uh, I bet you could ask. He was people. radicalized in Sweden. Right. So yeah. uh, people don't remember. Or the um, Barcelona when they drove down uh, in a van. Terrorists drove down a street and killed fourteen people. People don't remember that, and that was a few years ago. What, what was interesting about that is that it happened in the same week as the Charlottesville protest. Remember in America, there was yes. the Charlottesville, the far right were marching. Jews
0: will not replace us.
1: Right, so you had these kind of
0: crazy far right Which people. Which is an insane thing to scream for white supremacists. I mean, Jews will obviously <laughs> not become white supremacists. Yeah.
1: So um, And there was a big controversy because Trump, didn't denounce the far-right protesters, etc., etc. But anyway, at one point during this clash between radical leftists and far-right protesters, um, someone drove a car into the leftists and killed one woman. Yes. And it became a cause celeb. She was the martyr. People in the UK were talking about it constantly. The left still talks about it now. They still commemorate Charlottesville every year. Really? About, yeah. <laughs> about five days after that was the Barcelona attack. And silence so i wrote this piece headlined from charlottesville to barcelona um, saying so how do we explain this how do we explain the fact that a far-right white man in america killing one woman with a car is a huge source of angst for the left but a brown-skinned radical muslim killing 14 people with a car in barcelona is not And I think there are so many things to unpick there. One, I think, is that racial paternalism. We can't possibly talk about the Barcelona attack because it will offend Muslims. And we are decent, good, upper-middle-class white people. We don't offend Muslims. There's a racial paternalism. Because they're brown. Because they're brown. They're morally inferior to us. They're not as capable as us of hearing difficult ideas and difficult discussions. So we have to protect them. So that's racist in my view but also there is this notion that um fascism or neo-fascism or whatever we want to call it or just uh, murderous ideologies can only come from white men right because white men are the worst they're the scum of the earth um they're responsible for everything so the fact that in europe over the past few years we've had a significant number of brown-skinned men uh, men from um arab heritage or Pakistani heritage or whatever it might be, carrying out acts of extreme apocalyptic barbarism doesn't fit into their identity hierarchy. It doesn't fit into their worldview, which says that white people are bad and brown people are good. Um, White men are the cause of evil and black people and brown people are the victims of oppression. It doesn't fit in, so they just push it aside. It's extraordinarily cynical and authoritarian where if uh, a world event doesn't suit your ideological narrative, you encourage people to be amnesiac towards it. Forget it. Don't think about it. Don't look back in anger. So it's such a sinister. So I find the in- institutionalized amnesia in response and censorship in response to radical Islam to be a really serious problem that we have to challenge. Because if we can't speak freely about problems in our society, then we're
0: screwed. Yes, there's one thing in your book, that I, because I, I've never heard of Runnymede before. Mm. So what what is Runnymede? Runnymede is a kind of
1: anti-racist think tank. It's the Runnymede Trust in the UK. So it's kind of a bunch of intellectuals and activists and political movers and shakers. Leftists. Leftists, yeah. Uh, they wouldn't be radical leftists, but yeah, they'd be liberal leftists. And um, it's a think tank that discusses issues to do with race and equality. And they are responsible for, not for the term Islamophobia itself, that's been around for a long time, but they're responsible for popularizing it in Britain. In the mid-1990s, they popularized the term Islamophobia. So in my book, I look at what they actually said back then when they were talking about Islamophobia. And it's, they were very openly saying that hostility to Islam is a form of Islamophobia. They were openly saying that certain criticisms of this religion crossed the line from criticism of religion into bigotry. So from the very beginning, um, the term Islamophobia was used to demonize blasphemy, I guess, you know, criticizing Obviously. this. Obviously. Yeah. So, it, so it was there from the very start. And one of the points i make in my book is just how extraordinary it is that in 1989, a British citizen, Salman Rushdie, he wasn't born in Britain, but he's a British citizen. He's a knight of the realm, Sir Salman. Um, in 1989, he had a death sentence issued against him by Iran. And just a few years later, like five or six years later, civil society in Britain is demonizing Islamophobia. So you have these, this kind of pincer movement where you have radical Islamists in Iran and elsewhere saying, uh, if you criticize our religion, we will kill you. And then you have civil society coming in from the other side saying, if you criticize this religion, we'll call you a bigot and we'll exclude you from polite society. It's such a bizarre coming together of moderates and radicals to crush open, free discussion about religious
0: ideas. So do you think from these intellectuals that talk about Islamophobia and want to brand everything uh, that critiques Islam, Islamophobia or let's say, for instance, I uh, drew a direct line between certain types of terrorism and Islam as a religion, Uh, I would be called called an Islamophobe. Do you think it's just physical fear that makes them do this, or is there something else?
1: I think, I mean, in a way that would be more understandable. Wouldn't it? It would be more rational, um, because there are threats um, to people, uh, as we know from the Charlie Hebdo, thing the danish cartoons controversy um the threats made against people in sweden who who burn or threaten to burn the quran school teachers going into hiding samuel Paty beheaded we know there are, there is a threat of violence um in many instances against certain people so that would at least be more rational i don't i, I don't think it's that i think it's i think it's there's moral cowardice moral relativism they're unwilling to um apply the same standards of objectivity and universal freedom to to critique and to dissent and to discuss they're unwilling to apply that to all groups in society and all ideas in society it's i think there's a cynical desire to defend their identitarian hierarchies as i was saying so there's an element of that too so it's if it was just that they were scared of getting a a a knife in the throat or a threatening letter in the post or whatever I could have kind of understand that. I wouldn't admire no, that's it. quite understandable. I'd understand it, but I think it's worse than that. I think it's more that it's it's become a form of divide and rule, social control. Um, they pit the, the pain of Muslims, as they would describe it, against the bigotry of, of the majority white community. They use these two things to play off each other, to divide and rule. So one point I've often made is that I actually think there's a real basis for solidarity, in fact, between non-Muslims who support freedom of speech and Muslims who support freedom of speech. There's a real, I think, point of connection there, if it could be explored, in order to defend freedom of speech across the board and in order to bring Muslims properly into society as equal citizens, which includes being equal in relation to freedom of speech and freedom of discussion. What's very interesting at the moment in America and Britain I don't know if it's happening in Europe, but it's very interesting to me that Muslims and other minority groups, Latinos, Armenians, um, African-Americans, and so on, a lot of them are now at the forefront of criticizing wokeness. So there's an uprising of parents.
0: Yes, but I think that's where you have to be careful, because first of all, Armenians are a people. Muslims yeah. are not a people. Yeah, they're adherents to a religion, and
1: uh, yeah, but I'm, I'm and not. That religion
0: saying... is also a political project.
1: Yeah, so I'm not saying that they. I'm not saying that um, Muslims are a race or anything like that because they come from different countries, different parts of the world. Um, the point I'm making is that um, maybe we should refer to them as Pakistanis for the because many of the protesters are Pakistanis. Um, Maybe we should refer to them as that for this, for the purposes of this discussion. But the point I'm making is that it's very interesting to me that minority communities are rising up against woke ideology. They're especially doing it in relation to um, certain forms of education about gender ideology, where kids have been taught there's millions of genders and, here's how you do anal sex. I mean, all sorts of crazy things are being taught in American and British These are groups
0: of people where family values matter.
1: Yeah, family values matter. They are against the kind of post-family, post-reason, relativistic, sexually decadent ideologies of the establishment. And they're making their voices heard. So the point I'm making here is, is not that Muslims are a particular race or anything like that. I'm just saying that I think there are points of connection and points of solidarity between all sorts of communities in our society, which I think would be such a useful way of pushing back against the divide and rule tactics of the identity elites who do play communities off each other, who do try to, one of the chapters in my book is about, um, it's called white shame. It's about the new forms of racial control. They do, racialize society in order to manage the relations between us, in order to control how we speak and how we interact. And I think pushing back against that in a genuine post-race way would be beneficial.
0: I'm doubtful. As long as there hasn't been a reformation in Islam, I think uh, any type of cooperation will result in Islamic uh, entryism.
1: (laughs) You might be right. I don't know. But I think... I think the the best way to guard against anything like that, of course, is the starting point has got to be freedom of speech. The starting point has got to be establishing in our communities and our societies that Islam is just as open to criticism as everything else, because that's, that's such a useful, which it isn't at all. And that's why I wrote that chapter. Um, but that's such a useful starting point because it just, it reestablishes the, um, the importance of freedom of speech the uh, superiority of freedom of speech. And it sends an important message to society, which is that if you live here in a free society, there's a small price you have to pay, which is that every now and then you're gonna feel offended. Every now and then your God or your prophet is gonna be called a pedophile. Every now and then your your holy book is gonna be laughed at on television. But that's a really small price to pay for living in a free society. If we can get that message going, which is gonna take a few years. No, no, shit, don't
0: you ever get the feeling that we who uh, like the idea of freedom of speech are in an extreme minority even in our own societies? Yes, Yes. absolutely. So we first should maybe explain it to our own compatriots, you know. To
1: our friends and (laughs) local community leaders and politicians. Yeah, I agree, yeah.
0: Because my mother constantly tells me, you can't say that. (laughs)
1: <laughs> yeah, okay, start with your mother and then we'll move on from there.
0: Yeah, well, I'll try. <laughs> I have been trying for 45 years now. Uh, I I mean, it's a beautifully argu- argued book that you've written. Thank you. Um, I, I especially liked, uh, I think, the three last chapters. Uh, License to Hate is not... It's Viva Hate. Viva Hate. Uh, I, for some reason, it just became License to Hate <laughs> in my... my because... Uh, you take up uh, – uh, it's its such an interesting paradox within the woke m- movement, isn't mm. it? Uh,
1: yeah, a fascinating paradox, the paradox of hate, as I write about in that chapter, where they're against hate speech, they're against hatred, they they talk about hate crimes all the time, but they are the most hateful people in our societies. I mean, they really are horrible people in some instances. You know, they will – Look what they say about TERFs, for example. They'll call them bitches and whores and cunts. I don't know if I I can say that on your pod, but they use the most obscene. You can say whatever you want on my pod. But they use the most obscene language, and we're going to rape you and suck my girl dick. I mean, this is what radical trans people say. The kind of people who, in their bio, it says love is love. You know, they have the pride flag and all that crap. Or look at what they say about black conservatives. Uh, You remember when um, the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the attacks on Clarence Thomas in particular, who's a black uh, Supreme Court justice who who was against Roe v. Wade, he got most of the flack. He was called a a, a, a house, N-word, an Uncle Tom, of course. Just obscene stuff because they see them as traitors to their race. So they actually use racist language against them. Or what's, you know, the things to say about white men or whatever else it might be. Calling they, Jews Nazis. Oh, the things they say about Jews is, is I mean, that's the perfect example in some ways. And the Nazi stuff in relation to Jews is the most sinister of all. Because what they're essentially saying is that um, you, you've imbibed what the exactly. Nazis did to you. Yes. You've, you've become intoxicated by Hitler himself. You're under the law of the, the, those people who try to ex- exterminate you. I mean, it's just, genuinely racist, repugnant idea. And they say that all the time. Um, So the point I make in that chapter is that, how do we explain this paradox? How do we explain that we live in an anti-hate era where there's an empire of censorship now devoted to controlling hateful ideas, hateful speech, hateful thoughts. On campuses, in workplaces, in, in society, there are loads of codes and laws about controlling hatred. But hatred is everywhere, on social media, you have a 2 minutes hate every day of the week where someone has been demonised for saying the wrong thing. You know, Uncle Tom's, uh, bitchy turfs, hatred everywhere. So the point I make in, in that chapter is that the way to understand this, I think, is that the censorship of anti-hate is not actually about stopping hatred. It's a licence to hate, or I call it a licence to loathe. Because if you hang a, a sign around someone's neck saying this is a hateful person, he's a Christian, He's white. He believes in biology. He's sceptical of Islam. He once said something dodgy about the Quran. Whatever. If you, if you say this is a hateful person, you're actually encouraging people to hate him. If you say this is a hateful ideology, you're encouraging people to hate that ideology. So actually what hate speech laws do is that they whip up mobs who attack the people who hold those ideas. So if you criticise same-sex marriage, you're homophobic. If you criticise any aspect of transgenderism, you're transphobic. If you criticise Islam, you're Islamophobic. All these new words are invented to mark people out as demonic, as unacceptable, as beyond the pale, as bigoted and and sickly and vile. Um, And so the mob, the woke mob, the social media mob, they're activated. And they're they're instructed, essentially, to go after these people. So it's a very paradoxical and fascinating situation where it presents itself as a campaign against hatred and hate speech but actually inflames hatred and hate speech and i that's I think what that's, i try and untangle in yeah, that I,
0: I think you did a very good job i think that's why i i, I in my mind made the chapter into license yeah. to hate because uh, it does give people license to hate yeah absolutely just the right thing or whatever thing that the powers that be want you to uh, you know direct your ire towards
1: and you know it can yes and and mostly the license to hate applies to ideas so if you are a black person with conservative ideas you have a license to hate that person because he's seen as a traitor to correct thinking or if you're a woman who believes in biology you, you have a license to hate that woman because she's a transphobe. So usually it relates to ideas, but it does sometimes even relate to race. This, this new woke hatred. So for example, uh, we, we were saying about the Jews, because they're at the top of the identity hierarchy, They they are not only white and privileged, they're hyper white. They're hyper
0: privileged. One would say they are kind of a cabal yeah, controlling right. the world. Exactly. Exactly. Yes.
1: So that old, old idea has come back and they're seen as super white Super-privileged. So they're at the top, so you can hate them. In Britain, I'm sure it's different here in Sweden, but in Britain, Hindus are treated similarly. Because Hindus are a, a successful minority um, community, a successful immigrant community, and they tend a bit more to be more conservative, to vote more conservative. They, lots of them voted for Brexit. Not all of them, of course, but a significant chunk of them. So you can hate them, right, because they're, they're a privileged minority. Whereas Muslims are an oppressed minority, so you have to love them. You can't hate anything to do with Muslims or Islam. So even racially, because they create this racial hierarchy, which they justify in the language of political correctness, where people are sorted in a very inhumane way into the privileged camp or the oppressed camp, even even inflames racial hatred. And so, I do think that the anti hate, the ideology of anti hate is probably responsible for more hatred in 21st century Europe than than anything else.
0: Yes, and then you take this idea that uh, uh, hate speech laws uh, or forbidding certain types of hate leads to more hate, and you apply it to censorship. Yeah. Because you say that censorship is actually worse than language. And this brings us to the final chapter of your book, which is uh, that words are... Or can be a form of violence they are not innocuous things Mm. they are something to be reckoned with
1: yeah so that chapter is called words wound and because as I was writing the book I kept thinking I knew I wanted the last chapter to be on just a a straightforward defense of freedom of speech and I thought um, as I was writing the book and I was looking at all these historical ideas and all the historical forms of heresy where people stood up and Did said things they weren't supposed to say, and as I was writing about all that and reading all that stuff, I thought to myself, those people's words were actually hurtful. So I give the example and dangerous, and dangerous, and disruptive, and so and caused revolutions and wars, which impacted on people's lives in a very real way. So I give the example of William Tyndale, who was a zealous Protestant reformer in Britain in the 1500s, and he translated the Bible into English which you weren't allowed to do. Uh, The Bible was in Latin. It was only supposed to be read by men of learning, by priests. Ordinary people, their job was to sit in church and just hear the bits from the Bible that the priest wanted them to hear. There was no Bibles in English. There had been about 100 years earlier, but it caused such a huge conflict that it was banned. It was punishable by death to translate the Bible into English. But William Tyndale thought, no, I'm going to do it because I think ordinary people should have the right to read the word of God. Uh, he couldn't do it in england so he went to germany where luther's bible had appeared in english a few years earlier and he translated the bible into english he had to he was always on the run because he was being chased by the ecclesiastical authorities who wanted to burn him to death for heresy he was always on the run he was in hiding translating and then he was smuggling his bibles back into england and they were being distributed amongst his supporters Um, eventually they caught him they took him to belgium he was imprisoned and then he was strangled to death in public and burnt at the stake. Um, and I, I was looking at that example, and there were two things I thought. Firstly, one of the points I make in that chapter is censorship is always more violent than freedom. So, in this case, the violence of being burnt to death is significantly, measurably, objectively worse than pissing people off by writing a book they didn't want you to write. So, censorship is always more violent. Charlie Hebdo, if we come, I use that example in that chapter too. If we fast forward to now i don't give a damn how offended you are by an image of muhammad in comparison to uh, shooting people in the head in their workplace right are we really going to have a moral equivalency between these two things Pissing well off
0: that the, was actually that the discussion made, when yeah. charlie hebdo happened they said they had wounded the feelings yeah. of all muslims and of course they have to pay the price Yeah. People
1: literally said, well, you know, if they hadn't done those cartoons, they would, they'd still be alive. I mean, just it was astonishing. So, so one of the points I make in that chapter is that censorship is more violent than freedom, always. Censorship begets violence because the more you say to a certain group of people that your ideology is so perfect, so pristine, so wonderful that no one is allowed to criticize it, you encourage them to feel intolerant towards any criticism. You encourage them to feel violent towards people who criticize their ideas. That's what we're seeing with radical Islam. So, um, you know, if we tell people that words are a form of violence, we encourage them to use violence in response to words. And that's what's happening. Yes, but you're also
0: right, which I thought was uh, very good, that, um, it's not violence, but they can be hurtful are, yeah. and disruptive. That's and, right. And and we that defend freedom of speech should stop saying no. It's fine. It's yeah, just words. It's just words.
1: Exactly. No, that's that's really important point. And that's the second reason I talked about the William Tyndale example because the point I was thinking as I was reading about his translation of the Bible, that was hurtful, a hurtful thing to do. That was a very dis- disruptive thing to do that would have felt very wounding and hurtful and harmful, not only to the church, but to the people who support the church and who worship at the church. It's like, you know, when a trans activist today complains about an article by Jermaine Greer, for example, Jermaine Greer wrote a famous article a few years ago in which she said, Jermaine Greer is gender critical. She's very skeptical of transgenderism. And she described this incident in America a few years ago where a trans woman came up to her and she says, he grabbed me with his hairy knuckle and his, And she just really insults him and says, this is a grotesque parody of my sex. And that is seen as very hurtful by trans people. And I'm sure it is hurtful, just as William Tyndale's Bible was hurtful to people who thought that the church should be in charge. So um, words can be wounding. And those of us who believe in freedom of speech, it's no longer good enough for us to say, sticks and stones might break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Words will hurt you, often. And that is good. That's a good thing. It's good to feel shaken up and offended and have your eyes opened by certain ideas and certain words. It's good to have all of that in the public sphere to keep us on our toes, to keep us, um, keep our moral muscles exercised so we're constantly thinking and responding. Words do hurt people and words do wound people and words have caused the collapse of societies and the collapse of religions and the collapse of ideologies. And we have to be very open about that for two reasons. Firstly, because we're kidding ourselves if we don't recognize the power of speech. And secondly, because actually one of the great things about freedom of speech is its power. It is through freedom of speech that we can start to change society and start to disrupt a lot of the problematic ideologies you and I have just been talking about. The starting point for that disruption that we need is the freedom to speak and the freedom to dissent and the freedom to say whatever we wanna say. Defending that freedom is the building block, I think, to creating a more sane and reasoned society
0: in the future. Thank you for coming to Deconstructive Criticism, Brendan O'Neill. Thank you, always a pleasure. Thank you for listening to Deconstructive Criticism. This episode's guest was Brendan O'Neill. You can follow him on Instagram, read him in Spiked, or buy his book, A Heretic's Manifesto, on, for instance, Amazon.com. Thank you for supporting deconstructive criticism, whether it is on patreoncom Aaron via PayPal with Bitcoin, or on Swish 0046 768 943737. 0046 768 943737. You make my work possible. You can also support me by buying my book, This is a Swedish Tiger, on Amazon.com. I am Aaron Flam. Until next. Have a good unit of time.